After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. This is Raghu Marcus in Mind Rolling with my old, old, old friend, Tammy Simon. And Tammy, welcome. Welcome. Great to be with you. This is Raspberry, year and a half old Spoodle, half Spaniel, half Cocker, half cocker Spaniel, half Poodle, otherwise known as a Cockapoo. Oh, it's but a Cockapoo. <laughs> two women and a dog, we decided to go away from the Cockapoo. And <laughs> I've got a Labradoodle is one of my... Five. Okay, so it's all as about you, the oodle. Now, as you can all tell out there, we're dog people, and we're going to be talking about this wonderful book. Uh, we're going to be talking about dogs, but we're going to also reference this book that uh, it was edited by Tammy called "The Dharma of Dogs." Came out this year. Our best friends as spiritual teachers, and there's so many amazing stories in in this book. Um, and I, I mentioned to Tammy before I got on. There's a little bit of tears that may fall in many of these stories because of course the impermanence of it all is um can be tough impermanence is tough for for all of us in fact here's what you say in the beginning uh in your introduction tammy historically detachment has been easy for me to lean back and observe and know that everything is a flow of impermanence but this was something different. You know, we're talking about a dog passing and new. And I gave myself totally to the experience. What I found was that the utter heartbreak that I felt around the loss of Jazz, which was a, a dog that you had some years back, opened a gateway in me, a red, hot, aching gateway that showed me the kind of courage it takes to love with all my might and to experience loss. This is a, certainly a theme throughout this book for sure. So, um, but t t let's back up a little bit. I do want to explore that theme, but just what uh, prompted you to put this together? Was it that I mean, theme? I, yeah. It wasn't. I mean, actually, I mean, that theme became something that we saw in the 25 or so essays in the book, but the original impetus came from an editor who said, I have a great idea for a book called The Dharma of Dogs. Her name was Alice Peck. And as soon as I heard that, sounds true being a dog-loving culture. Any given day, we might have around 100 employees working in our two buildings and 20 to 25 dogs. I was like, sounds true, needs to publish a book called The Dharma of Dogs. Let's see what really is the Dharma, meaning the sort of special medicine, if you will, the special gifts, the special relationship between humans and dogs, how they can open our heart 
what is that? And then we started soliciting essays from different spiritual teachers and artists mm -hmm. about their relationships with dogs. And I think the theme that you identified, this theme of having our hearts open in new ways that perhaps we never had with human beings that we do have with our four-legged friends and then the experience of loss and all the lessons that come during that part of the process yeah. was one of the themes that ran throughout the Dharma of Dogs. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a major theme for all of us on a day-to-day -day basis, is it not? And uh, it, it is, and I think it becomes particularly poignant when there's a, a death that's close to you. And for some people, dog people like me, I noticed that when Jasmine, who's the dog I lived with for 17 years, so uh, Jazz was Raz's predecessor. Mm. So when Jazz died, I felt loss like no other death in my life. And I know at the time I felt a little uh, shy about admitting that. Like, shouldn't I have experienced the loss of family members and close friends and people who committed suicide, who I know friends, I mean, shouldn't I have experienced that in a more heavy way? But if I was really to tell the truth, Jasmine's loss put me down, down on the ground in a way that no other loss had. And I think it's because she had been, and once again, I feel a little reluctant, but not that reluctant, I'm sitting here talking to you about it, Raghu, to admit that she was my best friend. She was, I spent every day we were in each other's orbit, meaning she was so close to me within, you know, three to five feet every day for upwards of 14 years. She lived to 17. I got to know her when she was three mm. and she came to work with me every day. And she was really the one who taught me. And I, I say this truthfully. She was the one who taught me how to love. She really did in a way that human beings just couldn't get in. I was too defended. Uh, and too um, unsure if I could trust them. But I trusted her totally with my heart. Mm. And it's interesting, because uh, I've had this exact same experience, and I've even thought to myself, wow, I mean, you know, I've had a parent die, uh, both parents die. And uh, there was a way, I remember with my father, I was sitting there with him, meditating in the days before he passed, and he was in a, in a really pretty great state, it, and I knew it because we were really communicating that way, and he passed, and, and it was all just so part of uh, the flow. It was just part of the flow. But then, you know, I had a, a, a very dear dog to me, so I, I'm, I'm sure just like uh, Jazz was to you, and that, yeah, I ended up in the same place as you. I was, and I, and I look back and I, I wonder about it. I, I wonder if there's part of us as well that is because we projected as an animal that doesn't know, that has no intellectual capacity about, like my father knew he was dying and he prepared for it the best he could. He, he, by the way, was a devotee of Neem Karoli Baba, and he, my whole family were devotees. So he absolutely had that. And Sheena, who is the dog I'm talking about, there, there was this protective quality, I think, that was part of my, uh, you know, really breaking down in that moment. Uh, 
that she just does she know what was going to happen and you know all of these kind of projections and am, anthro am, what is it anthropomorphization yeah uh, what is that word i don't even know anthropomorphizing anthropomorphizing yeah so i think that was a big part of it but i think there's some way in which we want to protect these uh beings because yeah, that that may have been what was going on for you and i and i respect that and it's a testimony to your protective character i think for me in all honesty it was just simply the loss of her presence i mean i remember when i knew within 24 hours that we would be having to euthanize jasmine and that that was the most compassionate thing to do i fell down to the floor with her and for about four hours, I just kept hearing the sentence inside of my head, I don't want to be without you. I don't want to be without mm. you. I don't want to be without you. I don't mm. want to live without you. I don't. And I was like, Tammy, you, you know, you're a Dharma practitioner. You have to align with what's happening. You have to align with reality, align with the moment. This is what's happening. And of course, I knew that. And I also knew that I had to go fetal on the floor with her and go through a process of simply saying, I don't want this because that's what's true. And for me, it had a lot to do with things like, and I'm just telling you the truth here, Raghu, it had to do with her fur and how I liked the way her fur felt. Mm. You know, it had to do with the way her tongue felt when mm. she kissed me. Mm. And you know, I think as I tell the story in uh, The Dharma of Dogs, I had a difficult attachment experience in my early life with my mom. And so part of the healing that has happened to me through my relationship primarily with jazz and now carrying on with Raz is a healthy sense of physical attachment, a real healthy sense of bonding. And then being able to say, you know, it's okay. It's okay to be quote unquote attached and then really grieve and that that's the price of loving and that I'd rather actually be, not just be that kind of person, I'd rather love like that. I'd rather love so much that I let myself know the, what her belly felt like when I would rub it, what her paws felt like when I would hold them in my hand, all of that. I'd rather know that, love it deeply, and then go through, go through the deep grief. I remember it was just about three hours before uh, Jazz actually died, she just came and she flopped on my lap in a type of giving in to the whole thing and letting me know that she knew and also she was wanting to comfort me. And she just collapsed on my lap like that for a couple of hours and let me uh, pet her. Mm. It was gorgeous. So anyway, so to me, when I think of this Dharma gift, what could be a bigger gift than the gift of loving fully? open-heartedly, even knowing that these animals have such a limited lifespan. It's only going to be 10 to 20 years if you're lucky, you know, getting up to those higher numbers. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And yet we're going to love all the way. Yeah. Uh, I said to you also before, uh, one of the uh, stories here is from Adyashanti, who is just a, a wonderful teacher. And uh, he, because uh, what you're saying really uh, reminded me of what he, uh, a really beautiful passage 
in 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 his uh uh his story of this dog that had passed away and they had a ceremony for his dog in his backyard and people came and it was um you know he had some tears and then he said that's when the strangest thing happened perhaps because i'd completely let go to the experience of grief something unusual occurred right in the middle of my chest it was as if a pinprick of light glowed from my sternum as i continued to read and grieve fully he was reading in a memorial this pinprick of light grew bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and went beyond my body, filling the space all around me. This light radiated a feeling of profound well-being, extraordinary happiness, contentment. It was my first deeply non-dual emotional experience in the sense that it included both grief and happiness. It was the first time I realized that two completely opposing emotional states or states of being could simultaneously exist in the exact same space without any contradiction whatsoever that in the core of my grief I could discover a profound sense of joy, contentment, peace, and well-being. One didn't overshadow the other. When the pinprick of light and well-being showed up, it did not sweep away all the grief. It happened in the midst of the grief. The grief wasn't getting in the way of the joy, and the joy wasn't getting in the way of the grief. They existed as one totality, one gestalt, one moment. Mm. I love that passage. I, I love his yeah. experience. And um, I do think it is something that we something to aspire to um, because I think it has way broader implications. Um, as you know, I work with Ramdas all the time, and one of the things he talks about um, as certainly uh, as a way to get more, quote-unquote, be here now, is to be able to live on more than one plane at at the same time. And, mm -hmm. yeah, talk a little bit about that in your own experience. You know, for me, when uh, Jasmine died, I didn't have that uh, huge two things happening at once. But interestingly my partner, Julie, was in a very beautific state when Jasmine died. Mm. She was uh, playing a frame drum and accompanying Jasmine, at least in her inner experience, that was what she was experiencing as Jasmine was dying, uh, crossing over, if you will. And afterwards, I told Adyashanti the story of oh, oh, really? Jasmine's death. I shared it with him. And he said, well, the two of you together made a complete picture because I was you know, crumpled over Jasmine's body wailing and Julie was in this ecstatic state. So anyway, that was, I think, one insight I would say I had into Adya's experience, although I had to divide it into Julie and I as two heads of one experience mm. in the room. But then after about three weeks later, I had a very powerful dream about Jasmine, where she was living right in the center of my heart as a kind of small little figure of light. And she was saying, I'm going to live here forever. Kind of like she was a little small bunny rabbit. Mm. 
Mm. And she used to love to chase bunny rabbits in our front yard and things. And to me, that was the, the sense that a few weeks later, this pinprick of light, if you will, opened up in my experience as a dream. It came to me when my conscious mind wasn't there mm. kvetching mm -hmm. about this <laughs> terrible loss. But in the dream state, there it was. And I, I do think that in the depth of loving and losing, there is this experience of illumination that's mm. possible, this light, this some unconditioned sense of all is well. Mm. Yeah. And again, throughout this book, there is all of these informed realities, I would call them, that can really help us with every other aspect of our lives. And, and I hope you don't mind me reading some of the, some of these. Oh, I'm, I love hearing it. It's great. Yeah. I love hearing the sections, too, that you were really drawn to. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, he talks about that experience uh, a little later on uh, Adya Shanti. When we encounter the immensity of our own experience, we learn that it's so vast. It's not what it appears to be on the surface. There are multi-layered, multi-textured aspects of our experiences if we open deeply and profoundly to them and trust them. A lot of it comes down to trust, which is one of my favorite words and uh, themes. In fact, um, as you know, we do these retreats in Maui with Ram Das, Krishnadas, and others, and we're doing one with, uh, and Jack Cornfield uh, is involved, and I had a chat with him, and I said, what would you like to, you know, have as a theme? And he immediately brought up trust. I said, well, mm -hmm. God bless you, because I think that is so important. It's, it's the, to me, the, the, the thing that can launch people into a much deeper and in more intuitive part of themselves. I mean, for me, it happened when I met Ramdas, and I looked into those blue eyes, and, and I had this complete, utter, 100% trust that what he was speaking of and his experience and his honesty, um, I, I could enter into that space. And I think so trust, um, you know, I love what he says here. I think that's mm -hmm. just uh, perfect for people. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's trust as in trusting another person, like when you looked in Ram Dass's eyes. But I also think about just what it means to trust life. Yeah. So that means trusting everything that has happened in our life, every death, every supposed misfortune, and trusting what's happening now, whatever is happening right in the moment of our life, our current experience, and also then trusting what's going to happen, right. you know, as well. So if we can trust everything that has happened, then maybe we'll have the ability to rest in a kind of openness to everything that might happen. Yeah. As Roshi Halifax talks a lot about trusting the mystery. Yeah. Definitely. Um, another uh, one of the uh, essays called My Little Buddha, Andrew Holacek. I don't yeah. know, Andrew, but uh, this is another thing. Uh, you get to know, there's a way in which you get to know people that write these essays. Some of these people, a number of them I do know personally, but then there's people like Andrew that I did not know, and, but then I got to know, and these are not long essays, but they're yeah. so revealing because of the depth 
uh, related to the uh, the animal that they were connected, the dog that they were connected to. But uh, he talked in this one, this is an interesting subject, in the magical world of Tibetan Buddhism, he said that tulkus, or awakened ones, are able to take rebirth in any form, including that of an animal. So uh, that uh, led me on to, uh, I'll tell you a story, my dog Please. story. Um, Please. We, uh, my wife and I, Saraswati, we went to India. Uh, we go very often, as, as I've told you and you know, uh, and we go visit Maharaji's uh, Nimkaroli Baba's ashram in, in Kenshi, uh, where there's a resident saint, Siddhima, and we do our retreat with her and so on, uh, pretty much on a yearly basis. And uh, we went and we left. At that time, we had, uh, she had from... Uh, uh, from the city that she's from San Diego, she had moved and brought some older dogs. She had a couple of older chihuahuas. And so we had a wonderful uh, dog sitter, and we're not there more than two days. And she gets a call, or whatever it was back then. Yeah, call. Your dog died last night. And she was just so bereft that she could not be there to help that soul transition mm. i mean it was a terrible couple of days so she's in this state of grief suddenly another one of the westerners who lives there and kind of interfaces with the westerners on behalf of the indian comes into the ashram and says the workman behind the ashram this is kenchi this is where we met maharaj where ramdas was with maharaj right. you know it's like a a major place for us one of the uh workmen brought this puppy uh, to me because he knew I, I would help take care of dogs and it was abandoned in the forest crying all night so I'm, I'm going to try and take care of it can you help me and she bumps into my wife in that moment you know literally 24 hours after the her yeah. dog had passed oh yeah okay so that started a process for her of moving I have to take care of somebody rather than you know so the grieving process was going on but at the same time she was distracted anyhow this dog, they thought, we'll get this dog placed with a family, right? It's an Indian street dog, female on top of it. Nobody uh -huh. wanted it. Nobody yeah. wanted Because the people who have wherewithal in India, they want purebred, purebred dogs. They don't right. want Indian street dogs. And, and tossing it on the street would have dead. You're, you know, she wouldn't have lasted a minute. So Saraswati went and spent a week on the phone with airlines, with, uh, with customs, with Indian uh, exit visa, the whole, I mean, it took her a couple of weeks. She said, I'm going to adopt this dog. And finally, we went down to Delhi. The dog was like perfect. She had booking on Lufthansa. She got in a first class seat she had to get. We got, you know, through the exit visa and the guy, the Indian, I said, you're going to have to give this guy like 5,000 rupees. That's the only way we're going to get out of here. Guy didn't take a rupee, nothing. He said, Lucky dog, going to America. <laughs> so this dog, whose name is Kenchi, came to America. And I tell you, I have never, I've had a lot of dogs in my life. I have never, ever um, I encountered a dog like this. This dog is not interested particularly in any other dogs. When we're gathered together, if we're sitting together anywhere, dog is in its kennel most of the time or under the bed in a cave-like atmosphere 
wanders around the neighborhood. We just let her do it because we couldn't stop her. And and she has a friend she goes out with and then comes back. She is completely solitary. And one day on Guru Purnima, which is in July, full moon in the, in the Hindu calendar, uh, we had a uh, we have a chair next to our altar that has blankets of Maharaji and so on. And, you know, it's a sacred space. Yeah. She came in on that specific day, never went into that area before, and sat in front of the chair for, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, 45 minutes or something like that. So we actually do believe that this soul was in this dog needed to come here to America to get out of India. Is it some old sadhu, old yogi that's in because hmm. it does not act like a dog? And it, yeah, it's just you can tell. And and another story, so that's our little story, and with Kenchi, who I I could never, she would never even come in here. She only comes in here if the door is closed to my office to say, can you, you know, she'll talk to me, growl talk, whatever, doggy talk, and make me go up and open the door. She can get in there and be alone, right? Mm -hmm. That's her thing. And one day, I also heard another story, and this is all around this, this, uh, the possibility of, of a soul being in an animal and being ready to become who he or she is truly. Yeah. Lama Tsultram, who you know, father died soon after she, uh, she got a dog and a Tibetan Lama who was one of those prophetic Lamas uh, uh, who who told where Tulkus may be and so on, said to her, uh, did you have a family member passed recently? She said, my father. And he pointed over the dog. Wow. He missing you. Wow. So, I don't know. What do you think about this? I mean, to me, it's... It, oh, and there's I, the Ramana Maharshi Lakshmi, the cow story, too. Do you know that one? Uh, you tell it. I've heard that he, he believed that his cow was, yeah. was an enlightened being. Yeah. yeah. That cow used to come from town at the exact moment when there was darshan, and then he, they let him, the she, into the uh, darshan room, even when it was pooping and stuff. And uh, it would have darshan, and then it would eat the food that they ate after. I mean, it's extraordinary. For 20 years, and he had an incredible uh, cow shed built for her and so on. Yeah. yeah. Well, what I think is, I don't know. So I'm going to put it in the big question mark. Oh, come on. you got to know. I know. I I don't know. But what I like is I like the level of respect and deep deference that hearing those stories communicates. So if we treat, whether it's our cow or our dog, as if it's an enlightened being, I think it's the right level of respect to have for our animal. So, you know, sometimes I think about how superior raspberry is to me. Her hearing is superior. (laughs) Her sense of taste is superior. Her ability to open her heart and be loving and forgiving. She has a completely superior capacity to forgive than I do. Uh, You know, Eckhart talks about dogs, he uses this phrase, guardians of being. And I love that phrase. Here we are as spiritual practitioners trying to remember the being part of our human being. And our dogs are expert at being. They're experts at it. They are the the guardians of being. So I I think that that level of deep respect 
is is beautiful to me. Mm, yeah, yeah, and it's part of the mystery. Who knows? I mean, who knows what that reality is? Um, there's a there's a uh, I love J.P. Sears. He's funnier than yeah. hell, right? I've, I've done stuff with him before, and and so his his whole essay is taken in the in the voice of his dog. <laughs> that was terrific. And his dog says, "I taught him how to unearth his childlike self." By projecting it onto me, he needed to be lovingly fooled into doing this for a few years before he be- he could begin to realize that the love and affection he felt for me was really love and affection he had for the most sacred parts of himself. Wise thing, eh? I helped him find what had been hopelessly lost and buried. It makes me, it makes my tail wag when he sees less and less of the four-legged brown furry mirror that he's looking into and realizes more of his connection with who's looking into the mirror, his innocent inner child. Mm. That's so lovely. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and that is such, I think that's such a common denominator for people who love dogs and have had dogs. That kind of reflection, no, that... Just yeah. the simplicity, the being and talk about be here now, the being in the moment and so on, um, just being with with an animal, uh, with a dog yeah. particularly. And I think in that instance with JP, the playfulness and a lot of the people who wrote in talked about how there were certain qualities that their dog helped them discover in their experience that they didn't previously have. Like because of my dog, I went on walks on certain trails or went outside, you know, Lama Suryadas talks about because of his dog, he actually took a walk every morning and went outside and connected with the blue sky. And, you know, I know for me with Raspberry, hey, Raz, come here. She is yeah, so Yeah, let's everybody see playful. Raz. Come on up here. Hey, Raz, come on. She's so playful. She, uh, she, I, sometimes I, I, I say that she wants to play fetch all the time. If I had a ball, that would really get her. <laughs> hey, Raspberry, come on. Come on, we're on... We're, we're on, on, we're on TV. Yes. Come on, Now's baby. when you got to perform. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Come on over here. She get one of mine over Come here, on. too. You got to see this dog, everybody. It is so absolutely cute. Okay, I'm going to go get her. Cute. Yeah, go get her. Meanwhile. Okay, Leela. Leela. Leela, come. See, if we're going to do this, we, we have to shake. Come here. Come here. Sit. 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 Okay, now we're going to introduce, I mean, this is crazy, but there's Leela. Leela is the Labradoodle, and that's Raz, Leela. And that's a little puppy we have now called Prem Love. Look at that. Hi. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Okay, people are going to think we're nuts. So that's who we are. Oh, my God. Or maybe we're going to convert some people to the idea that uh, the kinds of uh, connectivity that we can have with dogs and the way that we can relate with them and what they offer can change a heart, I think. Um, hmm. I think, there, oh, oh there, there's, uh, who's this person? I don't know here. Sarah Beek. Sarah? Yeah, Sarah Beek. She wrote a book with Sounds True called Red Hot and Holy. Oh. And uh, yeah, and a, a heretic's soul journey. 
and she's a, a beautiful Harvard-trained uh, religious scholar who really writes about the reclamation of the soul. Mm. Well, her her essay was you know was very interesting uh, in that she it was about her feeling of being disembodied. Um, she yeah, said, I think a, a recovering intellectual who yeah. <laughs> really found her way deeply into embodied experience and how her dog helped her with that. Yeah. Years of spiritual study and transcendent practice, she writes. A chronic case of psychological avoidance and a history of soul trauma resulted in me not fully inhabiting my body. Uh, I was detached from my physical form and feelings, disconnected from my, from my somatic awareness primal instincts, and honest human needs. My attention was up and out, not down and in. I floated above this planet instead of sinking my heels into the ground. Mm-hmm. I, this, this to me is, um, I think, quite common. And oh, in, yeah. Yeah, in, in all of us, that the, the detachment that we have to to a somatic awareness and you have um, somebody who I have talked to uh, it's been a while and I actually need to get back with him Reggie Ray who uh, is is a wonderful teacher particularly around somatic awareness Um, yeah he teaches somatic meditation and I studied with Reggie closely for 15 years and even have done some teaching of the somatic body work just because it's been so helpful and I think a, a combination of doing the type of body work practices where we reconnect, really bring our awareness into the physiological level of experience, sensate level. That and hanging out with dogs really helped me so much to get to the ground, mm. that sense of connecting with the earth. I mean, that's one thing when Eckhart calls dogs guardians of being, that beingness has a real connection to the mud and the grass and the feeling of the earth. And, you know, that's part of it. You just picking, I mean, this is why I love having dogs at Sounds True in a workplace where people can get so busy, but you got to go outside and pick up their poo twice a day, three times a day and everything. <laughs> it, it, it connects you. <laughs> That'll connect you too. Um, talk a little bit about, uh, this is a little bit going left, but not really, but I, I think it's, uh, it, give us a little, a little bit of a primer around somatic, uh, meditation and the way sure. and a path for us to be able, for our listeners to be able to do something, uh, you know, very simple on a day-to-day basis that enhances that ability. Sure. Well, the type of meditation protocols that Reggie teaches, they're, derived from Tibetan Buddhist practices and really come in many ways from some very advanced Tibetan Buddhist practices that he's made accessible. And so to bring it into your life, it can be something as easy as, can you feel your feet? Can you feel all five toes? Can you do that when you're in the middle of a meeting Mm. or in the middle of when your partner is asking you to do something that maybe you don't want to do. So, I mean, feeling your feet is one thing, but can you actually breathe in in, through all the pores of your body? So you're feeling your ears and your head and the back of your body and the Mm. back of your arms, all five fingers, 
can you take breaths that include the whole of your body? So you're breathing all the way from head to toe. And then one of the practices he teaches, which I think is incredibly transforming and relates to our conversation that I was saying about connecting with the earth, is actually a practice of breathing up from deep below you, the energy of the earth into your body. You know, I once met a, uh, a woman who teaches energy medicine practices, and she said, especially for people over 40 years old, if you don't know how to connect to the energy of the earth, you're gonna find yourself depleted, run down, without that sense of renewal, that there's this incredible energy source that's available to us all the time that I think animals have a natural sense of connection to, mm. but we become disconnected from simply just breathing in that life force that's available in the living power that you feel when you walk into the forest or you're walking on the beach, but we can avail it ourselves to it all the time, wherever we are in a city, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So being able to avail ourselves somatically to the support of the earth. Yeah. And everybody out there, this is something you can, we all can do in an instant. Walk outside, go to a park, beach. I mean, I'll tell you, Tammy, these dogs do not allow me to spend over a couple hours at a time in front of my computer screen or on the phone or whatever it is I'm doing. No, they, I know what you mean. They pull me out, and we uh, just before the podcast, I was out. Uh, we have a, you know, I live in North Carolina, right in the mountains, so there's a beautiful river that goes down through, uh, not five minutes from my house, and you know, we went by the river, and of course, there's nothing like flowing water to have that connectivity. And, yeah. But it's also just the joy, the joy that you see these dogs bounding, you know, and s new smells and everything is brand new. It rubs off on you. It really does. Anyhow, it's fortunate. true. Um, I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I, I just want to I want to get at one thing in particular. Um, well, a couple of things. W one is that I think in the book and I can't remember which essay it is. But somebody quotes uh, Mingyur Rinpoche, who I love, who's a wonderful Tibetan Lama, uh, as saying, you cannot euthanize pets because you are not allowing the natural course of karma, say, to take, you know, to, to do its necessary thing for an embodied, an incarnation. And he was very, very, very um, firm seemingly, about this. And then in other stories, yeah. uh, essays in the book, many people, they came to the point where they just could not see that this animal would continue to suffer this way. And euthanasia was prescribed. What, what is your thoughts around this? Well, the first thing I'd say is I think it's a very, very, very personal decision. Yeah. And I think people have to really search their own hearts. In my experience, I was determined not to euthanize jazz for similar reasons, perhaps to what you're quoting and thinking, you know, I, I, no matter how inconvenient this becomes, I would never euthanize my dog because I'm inconvenienced. I'll do whatever. She can pee and poo all over me for months or years. So, you know, that's not the reason. It's not about me. I want to do what's best for her. And then when it all came down to it, I spent quite a bit of time with the gentleman that did eventually euthanize jazz. And he had 
um, euthanized maybe 4,000 dogs at that point. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to him for about three hours. And I was like, how do you know? Tell me what will happen if this doesn't, if you don't do it, what are all this? And basically he said, Tammy, it's better than one week too early than one hour too late. Better to euthanize your dog one week too early than one hour. And I said, what will happen if it's an hour too late? I want to know. And then he told me a lot of horror stories of what the death would actually be like for the animal. And I didn't have the feeling that there was some spiritual growth that would happen for Jazz through that process. And then he left and I prayed about it really hard. And it was clear to me that I was the one that was being selfish by not euthanizing her that I was the one that that wasn't really what the situation needed. Mm, and so mm. I made that decision. But as I said, I think it's really important for each person to search that and pray on it for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough, tough, tough thing. And it's, uh, I've been there a number of times, actually, not just with my own dogs, but with uh, friends or partners or yeah. It's really a, Again, developing your intuitive nature to the place where you can go inside yourself and know what the right thing to do is, I think, is 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 beyond anything that any uh, anybody can say to you. This is the way it should be. Even yeah. even a, even a Tibetan Lama. Yes. Even a Tibetan Lama. Um, so, last but not least. Uh, there, uh, this uh, wonderful story. I don't know her. I know about her. Beryl Bender Birch. Yeah. Seems like a wonderful woman who's done a lot of wonderful things in her life. Um, but uh, she had this um, yoga teacher training, and and in the school uh, they have a ritual called celebrate impermanence that involves cultivating an understanding of this letting go business. I love how she puts that letting go business. And uh, as you said earlier, and as we talked about, these animals have a fairly short lifespan when you think of it. Mm -hmm. And you are going to experience this quote-unquote letting go at some point. And it it has an opportunity to uh, inform you uh, when it's your time to let go or when it's a, a loved one, a parent, time to let it to go and you to let go and we're talking about dealing with attachment yeah talk about attachment and impermanence in that in well related. i think my my point was that healthy attachment allows us to connect deeply body to body heart to heart soul to soul and then we have to be able to let go when it's time and to let our hearts break all the way and they will break and it will be at least in my experience absolutely excruciating almost unbearable but then there's that pinprick of light that you described in Adyashanti's essay there's that sense of unbelievable deep excruciating loss and the brightness of love itself and of knowing love and knowing actually that it's unbreakable, that the physical death has happened, but that love has remained somehow 
like when I told you the story of Jasmine appearing mm. as a little embedded animal in my right in the center of my chest, living there forever. She's always there. Mm. So through the heartbreak, we discover what doesn't die actually in the bond that we have. Yeah. That is uh, the thread, the, the true thread in this book is love. I mean, yeah. people, the unconditional love of, of, the, of the animal and of the person who is connected to the animal. Yeah. And that unconditional love is, uh, is, the, is to me the thread of our lives. And uh, if, if, I mean, I experienced that with uh, when I went over to India and met Neem Karoli Baba, and, uh, and that was his only instruction was love everyone and tell the truth. I mean, that's what Ramdas to this day continually expounds upon. upon. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I, I think this book, Tammy, really reflects that and gives people an opportunity to experience, even though if they have not had a dog, we have to do a whole thing around cats, by the way. We're going to get a lot the of car- blowback. The karma of, ca- the karma of cats is coming. It's coming? It is. The karma of cats is in the works. Oh, great. Because I love cats, too. I love that when you have both of them, they're kind of really cool together, if you raise them as kittens and puppies. So this is a wonderful book, The Dharma of Dogs. You guys can all get it out there. Uh, go to Sounds True. Or, of course, we prefer you to go to Amazon. I mean, this is you know, why we prefer you to go to Amazon. So you can. There it is. Thank you. Sure. The Dharma of Dogs. Uh, we get uh, go through our portal off of BeHereNowNetwork.com so we get a few, as I say, shekels come our way and sounds Two true. dog biscuits. Yeah, <laughs> we get our dog biscuit. Hey, thank you for being here. Right. Thank I, you, I, it's my Thanks for being such a dog lover. I, I didn't know that about you, so I'm very happy. I didn't know that happen. about you either. It was like, oh, geez, you know, and we've known each other. We won't even say how long. Um, but, uh, it's just wonderful to have you, Tammy. So, uh, everybody, uh, you'll be able to, uh, oh, and we have a bark at the end. How perfect Perfect. is that? Uh, you'll go to, uh, mind rolling on beherenownetwork.com and there'll be show notes and you'll be able to see other things that Tammy's involved with and what's going on. It sounds true. Of course, uh, we at the foundation love, serve, remember have a long history with sounds true and, uh, we're really happy about this partnership and appreciate you. All right. Very good. Bye. Bye-bye.